Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am so glad we're going to have this time together because I've got Jeff Redorn in studio. We're going to continue our Bible Basics Foundation series. And, of course, you know with Jeff, nothing's very basic, (laughs) 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 which you know to be true, Jeff, and you're laughing because you know it's true. But uh, we're doing uh, 3.1 today. I think it's 3.1. Jeff is a friend and Bible teacher and mentor and uh, teaches has been teaching uh, the Bible for over 20 years, and just glad to have him here with us today. Jeff, welcome. Hi, Bill. And a big hi to your daughter, Sarah, who's listening right now. She is. She's I just her... texted her. I know. I just saw her picture. I did. And Isn't she's she listening. Hey, oh, she's oh, great. She's adorable. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for listening. And I was just trying to write an email to your brother, Jim. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I want him to come in and, and uh, come in sometime when you're here. I, I, I know Jim a little bit. I'd love to see him. I will bring him. I will, I will get him. I will grab him and bring him. All right. Well, I'll finish so, the email during the break. Next time. Good. All right. So let's get into uh, 3.0. 3.0. 301. 301, yeah. 301, part three. I never so, get this oh, right. You didn't say Bible, Bible. That was oh, your Bible, 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 yeah. Bible. Yeah, yeah, your yeah. name for this series. So I thought because it's, it's a been a name. couple weeks since we did the other one. <laughs> <laughs> the other ones, I thought just a quick couple minute review here of what we've covered. So if th- this is part three in a series on the Bible. We are, in the first one, we looked at kind of the basics of the Bible, some of its facts. We talked about the fact that it's it's actually 66 different books, not just one book, uh, that the Old Testament was all written prior to Christ coming to earth. There's 38 books in the Old Testament, and all of the New Testament was written after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and there's 27 books in the New Testament. But we also talked for quite a while that there was one author of all of these 66 books, and that is God. And we talked about the concept of inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. So we know that God inspired Scripture as men wrote. Uh, 2 Peter says, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, men wrote the words of the Bible. So we see the individual characteristics and personalities of the individual writers, yet we know that the source is from God. And so then we talked about this big question, well, how can we know it's from God? Are there evidences? Are there proofs? And we actually spent uh, quite a bit of time finishing up the first session on internal evidences, uh, such as there's unity in all of these 66 books. It's written over 1,400 years by 40-some-odd different authors in three different languages, and yet it's perfectly consistent uh, and without contradiction through the entire book book from beginning to end, to, from Genesis to Revelation. And then probably the biggest internal evidence of all is fulfilled prophecy. And there is no other book in the world that has prophecy, hundreds of prophecies about people and places and kings and events and uh, that have come to pass exactly as God said they were going to happen. Uh, and that understand is easy for God, right? He knows the end from the beginning. He's outside of time, so he can look down and and know all. He knows all things. 
And so if you're turning to that fortune cookie to find out the future or your horoscope or any other methods to try to determine the future, know this. There's only one that knows the future, and that is God. In the second session, we... In 201 of Bible Bible, we (laughs) talked about some of the external evidences that we see, uh, such as some of the scientific information that is in Scripture uh, that that wasn't discovered for hundreds or even thousands of years later are indicated in Scripture, Um, archaeological evidence for all of the history of of Scripture, as well as it being historically accurate. Uh, There is no archaeological discovery, no historical truth that contradicts anything in Scripture, and I just think that is amazing. Um, In fact, uh, uh, many of the books of the Bible, historical books of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, have our our historical records of first account. They are reliable. And we talked about some of the other external evidences, other writings that support the history in the Bible, such as Josephus and others. And we talked about some of the common attacks on the Bible that, oh, it's just full of contradiction, it's at odds with science, it's just an ancient book, and what does it have to do with our lives today? Uh, Just a bunch of made-up stories that have been passed down from generation to generation. And in actuality, uh, we know, both Old and New Testament, that these were written down, carefully copied over the centuries, and that for the Old Testament, we, because of things like the Dead Sea Scrolls that we talked about, we know that we have a reliable copy uh, from, from very, very early on. And the New Testament, uh, unlike those who claim that it's been passed on from generation to generation, all of the New Testament was written within the lifetimes of those who would have been eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. So these are not stories. These are eyewitnesses' accounts in the New Testament, uh, and were faithfully, faithfully recorded in the New Testament. We talked about how we got the books, uh, talked a little bit about the canonization process and how we got our English Bible, and then we talked about that the Bible is reliable and while and the different translations. And while your Bible in English is a translation from the Hebrew and the Greek and therefore is not, quote, infallible, like some will say, it's not. It was a translation done by men. Uh, it is reliable. And for the most part, the translations into English are reliable representations of what's written in the original Hebrew and Greek. And then finally, we talked about uh, paraphrases in the Bible and that those are not translations. Paraphrases are not translations from Hebrew and Greek. It's somebody's, it's kind of like their commentary on the Bible. They're restating your English Bible Mm -hmm. in different words. And that, I believe, brings us up to today. That's a good recap. I like that. Good. Very succinct. So this week, here's what I thought we'd focus on. How do we now approach this book? If we are believers, and remember, this this book is written from God to the world, uh, believers and unbelievers. Now, the things of God uh, are cannot be discerned by uh, those who don't have the Holy Spirit, but it's an account of what happened to Christ, for example, in the New Testament, that he died and rose and and uh, uh, loves the world. God loves the world, and he died for us and rose again for us. Uh, so that is clearly written to, to the world. So how, as believers, however, do we approach this book? Remember, this book is written for us. 
to us, to you. Um, I have had conversations with people that said, you know, why doesn't God just somehow reveal himself, you know, to the world so that everybody could know? And it's like, guess what? He has. He has written his word so that we can have it. And, of course, he revealed himself through his son, which is recorded in the New Testament as well. So he has um, revealed himself to us. So no, so how do we approach it? We got to know that it is from God. This is God's word. So number one, know that this is from God. And that's really what some of the other, the last two uh, sessions has been about. Number two, we have to understand the context of every passage that we are reading and interpreting. Context, as some author uh, commentators will say, is king. Context is king. We have to understand when we're reading the Bible, who wrote the passage and to whom was it written? We need to understand, for example, that the Old Testament was written by prophets to the Jewish people who were under the law, God's chosen people under the law. The Gospels, which is the first part of the New Testament, I contend is actually more part, I don't know, let me not say more part, as much the conclusion of the Old Testament as it is the start of the New Testament. I think we get into trouble in the church when we directly apply some of the things that are in the gospel to the church, when the church isn't there yet. Now, the church is in view, but never forget that Jesus came to the Jew. Jesus came to those under the law. He himself was under the law. He died under the law and rose again under the law. It wasn't until Acts chapter 2 that we see the birth of the church and then the rest of the New Testament revelation. So whenever we understand and study the words of the Gospels, we need to understand that that context. And then finally, the New Testament, all written after, after the Gospels, starting in Acts, all written after the resurrection of Christ, um, and, as, and it portrays the truths and the doctrines uh, mostly by Paul, um, of the resurrected Christ. So Paul was the one who gives us the gospel, for example, that in 1 Corinthians 15, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, so context is so important. And just a couple examples I thought I would do. For example, in, in, in the Old Testament, and this is one of my favorite what's when I teach on this in my end times class we ever actually cover this verse in Jeremiah 29:11 and many Christians will have this verse kind of as their their life verse if you will and it says this for I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you a hope and a future this is one of these passages where now Christians does God know the plans that he has for you well, of course he does but in context, who is this passage written to? Who is the, the you? I know the plans that I have for you. Well, in context, if you just go up a few verses, it's to the Jews who were brought into captivity into Babylon, who, who God says are going to return back to their land, and I know the plans that I have for you, Israel, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope in the future. Um, so while we can know that God knows our plans and has plans for us, know the context of a particular passage. In fact, the whole Old Testament, the context is of, say, the law, all the feasts, the festivals, all the sacrifices that are described, all the dietary laws that are described. These were all 
for Israel. And so we see that we as Christians, if you understand it properly and understand the context, are no longer under the law. And so that when Christians try to take the law of Moses and apply it to us today, they are not properly understanding the Scripture. Paul clearly says that we as Christians, after the cross, born-again believers, are no longer under the law. And so he says this in six, Romans 6, 14, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. And in Romans 7, he says that we die to what once bound us, the law. We have been released from the law so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit. There's a dozen places in the New Testament where Paul clearly says we're no longer under the law. So when we read the books of the Old Testament and we read about the law of Moses, we don't apply that to our lives directly. Does it does it help us understand God and the history of Israel and what they were through and how the law is to be used today more properly and so on? Yes, yes, and yes. But it doesn't apply to us directly as born-again believers. We are not under the law. That's why Paul says, to the Jew, I become like one, a Jew to win the Jews. Though I am to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though my myself am not under the law. Paul understood the grace that he was under. Such good teaching. Jeff Redorn's my guest. We're going to take a little break. We're going to continue our study, our Bible Bible study, which is the foundations of the Bible. We're in 3.0 today. We'll take a short break and be right back. talking about foundations of the Bible. If you are new to your faith, maybe you're just learning about uh, God's glorious Word. This is going to be a very helpful series. We're in 3.0 right now, and we're going to dissect a very big word today, and it's hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Jeff, what does that word mean? <laughs> well, it means... I, I'm asking a question. I know yeah. the answer to but I'm going to let you answer it. You do. Um, I remember seeing one definition. It said, the science and the art of interpreting the Bible. Okay. So it's like how that. we approach approach interpreting Scripture. And uh, so, yeah, let's turn this. So wh- what are the principles? What are the kind of the rules, if you will, for interpreting Scripture? And we just really were talking about the first one, the biggest one, and that is context, right? Context is king, as I said. Uh, we want to understand the original intent of the author. You might recognize kind of this word original intent this is actually a debate that we have with our own constitution of whether or not we, we should, the judiciary should interpret our constitution with the original intent of the writing. I know of no other way to approach an historical document other than trying to understand the original intent of the author. Mm-hmm. If you're not going to try to understand the original intent, then what difference does it make what he wrote? Right. You're just going to make it up as you go along. And that's what a lot of people do in politics with the constitution. And that's what a lot of 
people try to do with Scripture as well. So we want to understand who wrote it to whom and understand the original intent or of the of the writer. Um, it, you know, there's a there's a really good example of understanding. There's also other things like the the figures of speech and cultural uh, aspects to the writing that can often be very helpful to understand this original intent. And I'm going to read a passage to you. And it says this, Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Well, you read the rest of the New Testament, you start getting this picture that the church is the bride So we see in Revelation 19 that the bride has made herself ready, dressed in fine linen, bright and clean. And now Jesus in John 14 says he's going away, and if he goes away, he comes back. Well, if you understand the first century Jewish tradition where the bride and the groom would basically get engaged, a price would be paid by the groom or the groom's father, the groom's family. The groom would then go away to prepare a place in his father's house or in his father's village. And then at some unannounced time, he would come back for his bride and take the bride to his father's house. Whoa, that's a a description of the rapture of the church exactly as it's going to happen. Jesus came to earth got this bride, went to heaven, and one day he's going to come back to take us to be with him also. So we read that, and we don't understand without that kind of first century understanding the fullness of what Jesus was describing in that passage. All right, principle number two. So context, huge, 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 huge. Principle number two, we need to understand and approach Scripture Um and see the natural, natural or the, the plain sense meaning of the text. What do I mean by that? What I mean is we don't want to spiritualize when there's no reason to spiritualize the, the text. Um, uh, one of my favorite commentators over the years is a guy by the name of David Reagan, and he says this, quote, If the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense or you will end up with nonsense. <laughs> I like that. Isn't that good? Yeah. You want to understand that the plain sense is the plain sense. For example, Balaam's donkey. Do you remember in Numbers 22, it says that the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and it said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Well, how do we take that passage? I take it as the donkey spoke. And you say, well, wait a minute. Animals don't speak, but we actually see animals speaking in the garden with the serpent and so on. So we we actually have examples of that. And is it possible for God to open the mouth of the donkey? Yes. But you'll read commentators on this passage. And I remember one, it was like, the, the speaking of the donkey represents the inner struggle of man mm. between you know, God and, you know, on and on and right. on. Or the donkey talked. Right. You know, people don't walk on water unless you're a Las Vegas magician. (laughs) That's exactly right. If you're going to discount one of these miracles, right, right, well, then what other ones are you going to discount? Are you going to discount the the walking on water? Right. uh, Making, turning water into wine, the healing of the leper, the giving sight to the blind. Are you going to discount the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you're down a rabbit hole at that point. Uh, and without the resurrection, there is no Christianity, right? Right. Yeah. So 
take the plain sense meaning uh, um, for unless it doesn't make sense, and then you can start looking for potentially other symbolic or spiritual references. We also can see in Scripture many uses of symbolism, simile, metaphors, parables, and so on. But I think those are actually very easy to spot. When Jesus says, I am the gate, was he an actual gate? Mm. No, he's not. When I, I am the true bread from heaven, well, he was he bread? No, he wasn't bread. These are clearly symbols. I am the true vine. He's using symbolic language to convey a spiritual point. But make no mistake, it's fairly easy, I believe, in Scripture to understand where they're using metaphors, similes, so on, and when they're using literal language. Uh, The book of Revelation is actually the entire thing. Commentators will often spiritualize the entire book of Revelation, that these aren't actual events that are going to come upon the world as part of God's plan for the end of the age. No, it's a spiritual representation of the battle of good over evil and every man and blah, 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 right? No, these are actual events that are coming upon the world. Um, so we don't want to spiritualize the text. When Jesus, when the Bible says that Jesus fed the 5,000 uh, with a couple loaves and fishes, did that actually happen or not? And the answer is, I believe it does. Let's take the plain sense meaning of the text. Um, so one of the last ones, This and this is a little, it's spiritualization, but it's an attempt to to kind of reconcile the understanding of the world and and specifically evolution with the biblical account that is in Genesis. I'm actually teaching a class right now called In the Beginning, and we're covering all these issues right now. Well, one of the big truths is whether or not Adam was a literal person or not, or whether he's representative in some way of man being evolved into where we're at today. And I, I reject evolutionary theory. I believe in special creation. I believe God made all the animals on the earth, including Adam, from the dust of the ground, just as the Bible says. But we don't have to just take the language in Genesis. We can also look in the New Testament and see that Adam is actually listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Well, why in the world would God list a fictitious character in a genealogy? Moreover, in places like Romans 5.14, it says that death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Well, Moses is a literal character, and so the plain sense meaning of that passage is that Adam also must be a literal character. Uh, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15 that the first man, Adam, and that's who sinned, who sinned and therefore death came to all men and so on, was from the dust of the, of the earth, and the second man... The second Adam is from heaven. Well, who is that? It's Christ. So if you don't have a literal Adam in a literal garden with a literal fall, you have no need for a literal redeemer to come and save people from their sins. We'll be right back with lots more. Jeff Redorn is my guest as we're continuing our Bible Bible study, the foundations of the Bible. We'll be right back. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the afternoon. 
We're back with Jeff Dorn. We're talking about Foundations of the Bible. This is 3.0. We've already done Introduction 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. We're going to go to 4.0, maybe 5.0, and then a graduate level class. Good questions are coming in. Is tithing in New Testament or under the law, Jeff? Under the law. Yeah, exactly. The, the tithe, yeah, the tithe is under the law. It was a requirement that God gave to Israel to uh, to pay a tenth of everything that their their fields and their livestock produced, the best of their fields and their livestock, and give it to God. And actually, there was another tithe uh, that was required every three years. So I actually see two tithes in Scripture. I I know that there are some that see three. I don't I don't see three. I see the two: a tenth every year, and then another tenth every three years. So actually, they paid what then thirteen and a third percent basically to God and and the Levites who uh, didn't get an inheritance of the land for God's temple. So it would be great if tax rates were about the same thing as, as what God required, right. wouldn't it? We actually yeah. have tax rates that are higher than what God demanded. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul clearly says, I shouldn't say this, not clearly, there's some debated, that in the New Testament, uh, 2 Corinthians 9 says that we should give as we decide in the heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion or obligation. I mean, the tithe was an obligation, but as one decides in their heart, because God loves a cheerful giver. So the New Testament standard, I believe, is give cheerfully as you feel led by God, not out of obligation. Faith Radio listeners are the most joyful givers out there. I am serious, and you're one of them. Thank you very much, by the way, for your generous gift during our fall share. You you bet. I love to support this radio station, not only by being here, but also financially. I mean, God knows that that entities like this need money to keep going. So, um, And it is a joy to uh, to give. It's a, it is a blessing. So, yeah. All right, what's the best way to interpret the Bible? Through the Bible. So, point number 3 is the word of God is the best interpreter of the word of God. Um that is where we should turn to first and foremost to have an understanding. So, if you don't understand a passage, um I think the best place to go is to start searching out other passages that relate to that passages, that are cross-referenced to that passages, that talk about the same things, that use the same Greek words or whatever. I mean, however you find other related passages, everything that God has to say about a particular topic, go start researching and go look up and see what God says about the whole thing. So whether you're you want to know about salvation. Well, you better look up all the passages on salvation throughout Scripture. If you want to know about hell or Hades, if you want to know about heaven, well, start understanding all of what God has to say about it. Uh, so the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. But you need this is the hard part. To do that, you need to know all of God's Word. But know that it all fits together perfectly. I took a class on, it was called, um, this was years ago, a couple decades ago, and it was called How to Handle Difficult Passages. And it was all about the passage in John 15 where he says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And it's like, well, what does that mean? So we did a three-day class on this passage. So here's what we, we started. What's the context of that particular passage in John 15? Let's look at the whole chapter and understand the chapter. What's the context of the whole book of John? So we look at the whole book of John. And it's kind of interesting. John basically says that if you believe, you have eternal life. And for 14 chapters, he's giving you this theme, if you believe, you have eternal life. And then comes along John 15, and he says, but if you don't bear fruit, he's going to cut you off. 
And the, 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 the idea is, well, there's no way. He can't tell you for all the, for the entire first part of his book that if you believe you're going to have eternal life and now say if you don't bear fruit, he's going to cut you off. So what's going on? In day two, we started understanding, well, what are all the other places in Scripture where God talks about whether or not you can be cut off from the vine or lose your salvation? This is actually one of these issues that I struggled with in my own personal understanding of Scripture for a long, long time. Because I felt that if we could lose our salvation, I needed to know, well, how can that happen? What are the criteria for me to lose my salvation? Is it, you know, one sin a day repeated for 40 days? Or is it five sins a day repeated for seven? Or, you know, what is it? What are the criteria in which I could lose my salvation and fall away from from being born again. Mm-hmm. And so I started studying it. And you know what happened? I would read one guy, and he would say, well, no, you have assurance of salvation. And it's like, yeah, I think we do. But then I'd read another guy, and he'd say, no, this concept of once saved, always saved is the doctrine of demons. You have to believe, and you need to obey, and if you don't, you're going to fall away and be cut off. And it's like, eh, maybe we can lose our salvation. And... Here's the big point. I I took this issue. I even emailed my pastor, and I said, can you help me with this? And he basically said, good luck with your studies, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he was no help. But I'm actually thankful he did it because you know what I did? I took this issue, and I put it up in this shelf in my mind. Do you have shelves in your mind? Mm-hmm. Do you? Yeah. I have one that says un, unresolved things. And I stuck it up there, and I, I remember praying to God. It's like, Lord... I really want to understand this. I need to understand this because if we can lose our salvation, the church should be just as busy keeping people saved as it is trying to save people. Amen? Mm. And so I stuck it up there. And you know what happened one day? I was reading in my Bible and I was studying the Word of God and I came to Ephesians 1 and it says this, and you also were included in Christ When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And I remember thinking, of course we have assurance of salvation. It couldn't be any other way. And you know what happened over the next months and years? I kept studying my New Testament, and I'd come across another verse and another verse and another verse that declares that we are eternally secure in our salvation, that we have assurance that once God has made us born again, we are born again for all of eternity, that nothing in all creation can take us out of his hands. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is kept in heaven for us, shielded by God's power until the redemption of those who are Christ Jesus. Over and over, and I started writing little ESs all over my Bible, right? Eternally secure, eternally secure. I ended up having dozens and dozens of places where God proclaims that we are secure in our salvation. So then you take that understanding to John 15, what we were talking about earlier, is God really going to cut off the believer from the true vine because they don't bear fruit? And I say, no way. The doctrine of assurance 
is assured. So what's going on with this passage? This is one of these passages where, and this is this is kind of part of a hermeneutics, if you will, not a hard, fast law, but sometimes understanding the Greek and how the Greek was interpreted into English can help us understand the issue that's going on here. And in this case, in John 15, where it says he cuts off every branch that bears no fruit, the Greek word is this Greek word, A-I-R-O, aro, and it literally means to lift up. Now, if you understand John 15, 2 as lift up, it suddenly says he lifts up every fruit, every branch in him that bears no fruit. And then it goes on to say, and he prunes them. So the picture is if you're a Christian and if you are a believer in Christ, a believer in Christ Jesus and you are connected to that vine, the answer is you are connected to that vine for all of eternity. If you're not bearing fruit for him, well, that is a problem. I want to talk to you about whether or not you're abiding in him enough and because God wants you to bear fruit. That's the big message of the story, right? He wants you to be fruitful for him. But we do that through abiding. We do that by trusting. We do that by loving the Lord your God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. And then he is the one that will bear the fruit. So he prunes you. He lifts you up so that you might become fruitful for him. It's not that you're going to be cut off. Because what happens at the end of John 15 to the branches that are cut off from the vine, that are not part of the vine? They're gathered up and burned. So clearly, branches that aren't connected to the vine are going to go into the fire of hell. And so I believe that Scripture declares that once you have eternal life, that eternal life lasts eternally, and we have assurance of heaven. And that is just one example of a difficult passage, and I know that Christians disagree on the interpretation of it, but um, why you need to know what all Scripture says about a particular issue, and build up your doctrines, precept upon precept, truth upon truth, foundation upon foundation. So the Word of God is the best interpreter of the Word of God. Jeff, great illustration of where the Greek is critical. Yeah, there are a handful of instances where a, if you see especially differences in some of the English translations— um, and they're, they're saying maybe slightly different things. This doesn't happen all that often. I mean, our English Bibles are reliable. We can trust them. But there are some cases where different interpreters or, or, or groups of interpreters interpreted the Greek a little bit differently. And in that case, there's probably an issue or a complication with the Greek. Um, I wish I understood a lot more Greek. I'm an amateur Greek guy. But today we have... We have tremendous advantages today that some of the theologians over the last 2,000 years didn't have. We have great tools. I have Greek word languages on my phone, mm, for goodness sake. No kidding. We can search this stuff out very easily where just 20 years ago, you would need to have a book that has all the Strong's letters in it, then go to another book and look up the Greek definition and then see where it's used and so on and so forth. Now this is a click or a touch away. All right, number four. God will teach you. And it's like, well, yeah, no, really, God will teach you. John 16 talks about that when the spirit of truth comes, he will reveal the truth about God and lead you into all truth. I believe 
that God is the best teacher. I believe the Spirit will lead us into truth. And I've got a little story. Do you remember George Mueller? Yeah, I do. So George Mueller was this guy that started these uh, orphanages in Bristol, England, back in the mid-1800s, I believe, and ended up having thousands of orphans, orphans in his orphanages. And in his autobiography, he has this, uh, these few paragraphs I want to read because it's, it's, it's symbolic of how we should approach Scripture. Too often, too often, we tend to go to the commentaries and the teachings first instead of to the Word of God and allowing the Holy Spirit to teach us. In fact, I remember I was teaching an end times class one time, and we were studying the rapture, and a friend of mine was in the class, and they were over for dinner, and she asked me a question about the rapture. I said, well, that's actually in the homework for this week. And she said, oh, just give me the answer. And I think that's how we, we just want the answer. Just give me the answer. Sometimes the reward is in the study and in the seeking. And as we do this, we draw closer to God through his word. And I think we allow him to teach us by his word. Have you ever been on a, you know, a kind of a rabbit trail through God's word, searching some out, and you've been blessed by the process? Yeah, it starts off tough. It gets fun and adventurous. And all of a sudden you end up at this crazy, wonderful place. Which you never would have done had you just been handed the answer. Yeah. So we're I, gonna take a break. When I come back, there's a question that just came in on the text text line. I would like your answer to. Okay. <laughs> Are you gonna tell me over the over the break yeah, what I'll, it is? I'll, so I can, I'll oh, set yeah, it up. Okay, yeah. Good. Jeffrey Dorn's my guest. We're continuing our Bible Foundation study. Bible, Bible, we call it. We'll be right back. Jeff Redorn, we're continuing our Bible Foundations study. We're enjoying this. We're in 3.0 already. We call it Bible Bible. And question came in about you get baptized, um, born again, baptized, but you go right back to living the way you were doing prior to being baptized. And that's a question of salvation. Are you still saved? Yeah, so they they said they were born again. So if you are truly born again, mm-hmm. I believe Scripture declares that once you are born again, you're, you have eternal life for all of eternity. So you cannot be unborn again. Um, that concept is nowhere in Scripture. Um, you know, the things that happen at the moment of salvation, such as redemption and forgiveness and made righteous and given eternal life and made a child of God and so on, all of those things, if you could lose your salvation, all of those things would have to be undone. You'd have to be unforgiven and unredeemed and unmade righteous and unborn again and unmade a child of God. He'd have to unadopt you. Remember, you've been crucified with Christ and resurrected in his power. So he'd have to crucify the resurrected you and resurrect the old crucified you. Mm-hmm. These are concepts that are just not in Scripture anywhere. Um so, yes, 
And are there examples of Christians in the New Testament acting worldly? And yes, there are. Paul says to put aside the principles of this world that you used to live in when you were unsaved, basically. So we can return to the principles of the world, and he tells us not to do that, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, put on Christ Jesus, fix our eyes on him. And um, yeah, so I I think a born a truly born-again Christian, just like the Corinthians, who had a form of sin that not even the pagans had, you can return to the patterns of this world, even as a born-again Christian, but that's not God's will for your, your life anymore. Yeah, and of course, there's plenty of false converts as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, we can't, you know, you say, well, he was saved and then he was lost. We, I know this, if you're truly saved, you can't be ever uh, separated from God in Christ Jesus, but we cannot see the heart. So I know the doctrine but I cannot apply that doctrine to any individual case because I can't see the person's heart. Mm-hmm. Only God can. Yeah. Oh, so George Mueller. Oh, yeah. We so didn't was, quite finish that. We didn't. So I'd, I just wanted to read this. It says this in his autobiography. God then began to show me that the word of God alone is our standard of judgment and spiritual things, that it can be explained only by the Holy Spirit. He is the teacher of his people. The Lord enabled me to put this to the test of experience by laying aside the commentaries and almost every other book and simply reading the Word of God and studying it. The result of this was that the first evening that I shut myself into my room to give myself to prayer and meditation over the Scriptures, I learned more in a few hours than I had done in a period of several months previously. But the practical difference was that I received real strength for my soul in so doing. Like many believers... I practically preferred the first four years of my divine life, the works of uninspired men, to the oracles of the living God. The consequence was that I remained a babe, both in knowledge and of grace. But notice this, one more line. He should have it settled in his mind that although the Holy Spirit is the best and sufficient teacher, yet this teacher does not always teach immediately when we desire it, and that therefore we may have to entreat him again and again, for the explanation of certain passages. Have you ever had a passage and you really didn't know what it meant for a long, long time, and then years later, it's like, oh, that's what that means. And I I think I understand it now. And I think that's exactly what George Mueller was describing. It happens all the time with me. Yeah. It's, it's so humbling. It is. You think you know the Word, and then suddenly... God reveals another thing and yes. then another thing and just opening your... And I think as we seek him, he can't just flood us with all this information right, right away. I don't think we could handle it all. But as we continue to study week after week, month after month, year after year, God will teach us. And I I, I love the passage. And, and Bill, this is honestly, honestly, one of my... Uh, greatest prayers for my own personal life and my teaching that I do is that I want to be, like Paul says to Timothy, that workman, one approved, who correctly handles the word of truth. I want to correctly handle the word of truth. But there's this picture of a sword. Do you remember that it's, Scripture describes that the word of God is is active and sharper than any two-edged sword? Mm-hmm. Well, this is like a broadsword, a two-edged broadsword. Have you ever held a two-edged broadsword before? They're pretty powerful. 
They are. But did you know how to use it? Could you no, handle one? No. Could you wield it in a battle? No. No, you can't unless you are trained on how to use it. And I think the picture is exactly the same with God's Word. Until you have the training, until you became become experienced in handling the Word of God, it's just like a giant broadsword. You couldn't slice your way out of a paper bag if you didn't know how to use it. <laughs> but once you're trained in its use, it's an effective weapon, isn't it? And that, I think, is the picture of Scripture. So I encourage everybody to get in the Word, stay in the Word, study the Word, let, the, let God teach you by the, the Spirit of God that is within you, for He will lead you into all truth. But it takes work. It takes time, it takes work, and it takes dedication. You've got to be in it every day. I'm trying to look up the Greek word for workman right now. I can't a find workman, it. one approved to correctly handle. That's Second Timothy, three. Is that fourteen? I can't remember exactly where that is. I think I you're Second Timothy three sixteen. I think. Well, right. that's the um, that's the uh, all scriptures God that's breathed. That's true. That's true. Yeah, it's in there. It's right in there someplace. Yeah. Um, oh, correctly handle. Second Second Timothy two fifteen. Look that's up. Right. Sec- look okay. it up. Second Timothy two fifteen. Correctly right. handles a workman one approved who correctly handles the word of truth. I think that's Second Timothy two fifteen. So the bottom line is that the the sword of the spirit. Do you remember the armor of God? Yes. So the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and what's the sword? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so that double edged sword, that large, broad Roman sword. And uh, we want to be trained in it. So that's what I think when we understand the properly are the principles of hermeneutics, the principles of interpreting Scripture, of understanding, knowing the context, understanding the plain sense meaning of it, um, not spiritualizing stuff, overly spiritualizing stuff, but looking for the plain meaning. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose from the dead. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was dead in the grave for four days, and Jesus brought him out because that's how what he does and we can trust that when the donkey spoke, the donkey spoke. The workman in the Greek is uh, a laborer, usually one who works for hire, especially an agricultural laborer, hmm. which is hard work. It is. Unlike it is. sitting in a radio studio <laughs> in a comfy chair. <laughs> But you do a lot of study, and I know you. Bill. I do. I do a lot and of study. So you are yeah. you are a, one of those workmen. Okay, one approved. So nice save there. All right. What else do we have with three We've only got a couple minutes left. Is that it? Well, yeah. I mean, the, I guess the last thing I got. Is... A, I got another question. If you want, oh yeah, go question. Ahead. Uh, this was the about the going back to living the way you were. This is probably a common question that involves a lot of people. I mean, can someone go back to living a a worldly life and and never find their way back and still go to heaven? Yeah, so we're we are saved by faith. And so uh and and not by fruit, I would add. We are saved by faith. So I believe that I love that passage that your salvation is kept in heaven for you shielded by God's power. So your salvation, you are being held by God. You are now God's possession. And can God ever lose something that's his? No. Can someone steal anything that's his? No. You're God's. And he holds you in his hands. 
And he says, he'll never leave you and never forsake you. He says, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So yeah, it's one of these things. Now, do people falter and turn away from God and get mad? I describe it this way. There are children that get angry at their earthly parents, and they have tantrums, even wanting to run away from home, even saying things, I wish I was never born, and I wish you had another father, and they want to run away, and they have tantrums. Well, guess what? I think born-again Christians can have tantrums too, Mm -hmm. and I think they can turn away from their father and not live this abundant life and turn to the principles of this world. That's why Paul specifically says, put off your old self and put on your new self created in Christ Jesus. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome. This is great. And Sarah, if you're still listening to your dad, <laughs> text your dad to say, yep, I listened the whole hour. I want to know. That wraps up our time. Jeff, thanks so much. Thanks, Bill. For Bible Bible, that was 3.0. Next uh, time we're together, it'll be 4.0, and we're going to move on to graduate level courses as well. Go get your internet certificate, maybe. Anyway, look forward to spending time with you tomorrow. Kim Cattola is going to join me, Monica Groves, and we're going to continue our Old Testament study with uh, Dr. David Clark on Joseph. That's all set for tomorrow. Can't wait to be with you. Have a great night, everyone. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.